You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set up to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 289. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hallo! Hey san, hey san! Hello! Hey! <laughs> Well, okay. Well, uh, we're back, and um, I think the interview with uh, Anne-Marie Bon has been very well received. Yes. And I have something to tell you guys, mm-hmm. that we have a book opening event planned for Fake, the book that we talked about last week. Oh, so it's not a fake uh, <laughs> launching of the book. It's the <laughs> launching of the fake book. No, it's not a fake book. <laughs> oh my God, this is going to be... No, 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 it's a, it's not a fake book. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The book called Fake. The book <laughs> called Fake. Yes. And we're going to do it at uh, an event that is a science fiction themed event called Hungarokon. And it's going to be held on the 11th of September. Mm-hmm. on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. So uh, that's going to be quite a day. Very fitting, very fitting. And this is for the Hungarian translation of the book. It's for the Hungarian translation because yeah. it's all in Hungarian. And it, yeah, so I just really love the fact that uh, we contacted the publisher and they were very happy that we picked it up. And the things that I said to them about the book, they even got a little bit shy over it, I think. I mean, they had no idea how big a thing it was <laughs> that they published <laughs> so so is this a physical meeting where you're going to to launch the book or, or this congress or whatever it is Hungarokon. yes Hungarokon. yes yes it will be a um, personal attendance event however i'm really hoping that uh, everyone will take preventative measures very seriously yeah. uh, you have to know that currently there are no restrictions whatsoever in Hungary regarding uh, personal meetings or anything like that. Okay. Uh, some organizers could decide to require COVID certificate, but it's not generally required by the government. No, it's, it's up to the organizers to decide if so. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we're talking not even wearing masks, mm. which I feel very bad about. But I kind of feel more secure in countries where I currently travel to because of my job, because they at least have those restrictions hmm. in place. So, but anyway, it's a good, good uh, event, and I hope uh, it goes well. Yeah, last year it was a total blast. Hmm. We did it, even though the COVID nineteen situation was on. But back then, we only had to make sure that we were all wearing masks. So, um, yeah, by then it was not that bad but since then it turned a little bit worse Mm -hmm. the situation but uh, yeah I think we're uh, so so far we could but we'll see how it goes you know what else is happening on the 9th of September it's of course the 20th anniversary I think you mentioned that of it's not an anniversary it sounds like a celebration but anyway it's 20 years since uh, the 9-11 events and it's also now uh, the date for the Congreso Esceptico. <laughs> of the Spanish skeptics. Yeah. <laughs> Congreso Esceptico. <laughs> and uh, they, of course, have uh, this every year. But this year, since, of course, of the date, they are uh, having a theme, which is 9-11 attacks. And, uh, and, and also about uh, conspiracy theories in, in general. And they've just, uh, well... A couple of days ago, they announced the speaker list, and it looks like uh, a really impressive bunch of interesting people there. Uh, There will be about 9-11, of course, talks about that, but it will also be about GMO and Big Pharma, and it's free and it's online, and uh, I think it looks great, and uh, we will post the link to the program in our show notes. Mm -hmm. Of course, it helps if you understand Spanish, I believe, but... um, (laughs) I hope they have a very uh, successful event that they usually do. So uh, don't miss that if you understand Spanish. Yeah. And I want to say also, speaking of 9-11, the Swedish skeptics in the pub online is on the 6th of September that I mentioned two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also about 9-11 and uh, it's also free. And that one is in English. And we'll post that 
link as well in the show notes. So I hope uh, a lot of people tune in to enjoy that. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's going to be something else happening between the 5th and the 12th of September, which uh, also includes the 11th of September, of course. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's going to be happening also in Hungary, the International Eucharistic Congress. I have no idea why it's, <laughs> it's called that. What's that talk about the Eucharist? I mean, it's bogus. It's it's like something that <laughs> I hope that event comes with free crackers. I, that's really uh, my hope. <laughs> <laughs> and wine. <laughs> uh, all right, but the reason why I almost asked you to include this in poking the Pope is because the Pope, the freaking Pope, is actually coming to Hungary. That's a live attendance event as well, which means that there will be more than five thousand people flooding these places, talking rubbish. And uh, that means that the students who usually live in the dormitory rooms of the certain university across Budapest, where the, the event will take place, they will not be able to move into their dorm rooms because of that Oh God! for the beginning of the semester. Right. <laughs> Isn't that ridiculous? I mean, all that because the government is, of course, in full support of this event. And they asked for these dorm rooms for the participants of the Eucharistic Congress. And who cares about the students who would like to move in for the beginning of the semester, which starts usually on the 1st of September. So sometime, it depends on the university, but it happens between the end of August and the second week of September. So right in the middle of when the Eucharistic Congress is happening and uh, the, the government basically decided to take some of these dorm rooms and uh, confiscate them <laughs> and use them instead of the students who these dorm rooms are there for in the first place so fuck you guys and uh, there's no help for the students at all so they are just on the street then no they're, they're asked not to move in so postpone their but, but imagine that a student who lives in the furthest end of the country <laughs> cannot move in to the dorm room for the start. That means that they're missing the first couple of lectures, the first couple of seminars. And you know what the government's reply to that was? That, okay, we'll make sure that uh, where there is a register that you have to use for the attendance at classes and stuff, you will not be included in the missing uh, student's register. Mm-hmm. Very generous of them. Yeah, who cares that you're missing the actual class? Who cares about that? You will not have to worry because uh, there will be no repercussions. Fuck you all. <laughs> yeah. <The> freaking Eucharistic <laughs> Congress. Uh, yeah, it seems... <laughs> Education goes down the drain. Yeah, right. <laughs> seems like a cracking event. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's another event coming up. I just want to flag for that uh, uh, as we are talking about events coming. Uh, and on 9th of September... Uh, it's going to be this year's Ig Nobel ceremony. It's going to be live reported from the US. And if you can make it to that, I think you should check it out. Unfortunately, it will be at midnight uh, Central European time. So uh, you have to stay up late for that. Mm -hmm. And of course, if, if you don't know, the Ig Nobel ceremony is where they present the Ig Nobel prizes, which is a Sort of a spoof on the Nobel Prizes. The tagline is that is it's about research that first makes you laugh and then makes you think. So it's very funny often, but also all of them or most of these prizes, they, they are actually talking about serious research. It's just that it sounds funny, like, uh, like last year's crocodile who inhaled helium. And uh, just they made it in, inhale helium just to see if it sounded just like a, a, a person inhaling helium and got this funny voice. It sounds like dangerous research to me, but um, uh, that, that, that's the kind of thing that happens. Yeah. And, and of course, we don't know who's going to win. Uh, but they have a lot of real Nobel laureates doing the presentations. I think eight or nine of them. So it's it's sort of prestigious. And so if you can't make it, uh, at least check out the news uh, in the following the days following that event, because it can be very entertaining reading, and it usually makes the even the normal newspapers. Yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> All right. Started to feel a little bit like uh, when we started out the show a couple of years ago, almost six years ago now, mm-hmm. that do you remember, Pontus, that we covered a lot of events happening across Europe? <laughs> yes. We went through the calendar, yeah. Oh my God, I don't really envy those people who were listening to the the, the, the show back then, having to sit <laughs> through all that. Like me. <laughs> yeah. Especially about if you're listening now, uh, because these are events that took place like four or five years ago exactly <laughs> just fast forward yep so thank you Annika for uh <laughs> sitting through these <laughs> for listening to you guys <laughs> and bearing with us so much so that now you're sitting <laughs> actually with us not in the, in the same place but we're doing this together so <laughs> thanks for bearing so long with us thank you guys <laughs> uh but since you're here Uh, why don't we start with you telling us uh, why this week in skepticism is important? Yeah, and this week in skepticism, a very cool lady was born, um, but not this week, definitely, but this week, a few years ago, <laughs> because she was born on the 30th of August, 1797. And I'm, of course, talking about Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And just to be complete, she died on 1st of February, 1851. She was an English author and um, is most famous for writing Frankenstein, or like Frankenstein, how, however you pronounce it, or the modern Prometheus in 1818. She also edited her husband's poetry and uh, philosophical texts. And um, for her background, her father was a political philosopher um, called William Goodwin, And her mother was a philosopher and feminist, um, and she was called Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, so Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley um, was named after her mother. Uh, the mother died postpartum, so she was raised by her father. And interestingly, she began a romance with one of her father's political followers in 1814. Um, or like they publicly declared it in 1814, but they started dating. Uh, or dating is a pretty mo- modern term for that. But they, they fell in love when she was 16 and he was 21. This guy was Percy Shelley, um, who was already married uh, at that point of time. So they had a pretty interesting time <laughs> following that they went uh, went on a travel when uh, they came back she was pregnant not that good <laughs> so they were ostracized and in debt for two years and in 1816 percy shelley's um first wife committed suicide and um they got married Ooh. so yeah <laughs> wow oh. um but to go come come back from the gossip and um to why she's actually mentioned here in the podcast. Um, they spent the summer near Geneva at Lord Byron's um, house. <laughs> and there she had the idea for Frankenstein. Or Frankenstein. And um, I'll, I'll go on to that later. The, they had four babies, but only four, the fourth baby survived. Um, and her husband drowned in 1822 in a storm. Then she spent her remaining years with, to bring up her son, uh, and she died aged 53 Uh, most likely from a brain tumor. Wow, that seems like quite yeah. a lot of tragedies for one one lady. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. it's a life full of. It tragedies. seems like authors ha- seem to seem to like attract uh, tragedies because um, I recently read something about the Bronte sisters and they were also like they were stumbling from one tragedy to another. It was horrific. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, it it could be the reason why they um, decided to write all that yeah. stuff down, or a lot of a lot of stuff down that went on in their minds, yeah. right? So yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it's a way of uh, ventilating. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, but throughout her life, uh, she wrote several novels. The morals were often that cooperation and sympathy were the solution to uh, mm-hmm. reform our civil society, and that's is interesting because it, this is completely contradicting the individualistic romantic ethos that for example her husband and and other writers at that time wanted to happen and now coming back to frankenstein um she had a waking dream um in the summer house close to lake geneva and not byron's home where she dreamt of victor frankenstein who creates a sapient creature in a scientific experiment so he creates life artificially and then is horrified by his creation and interestingly this is named the first sci-fi story by some people <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. in a way it is yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and in 
And it's also, for me, I found it like the metaphor for like the mad scientist, so to say. Mm. So the mad scientist who is then horrified by his creation mm -hmm. because it's too horrific. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is, this is not what I meant to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We see that in so many novels after that. Um, mm -hmm. Even when you think about like cloning, for example, um, you mm -hmm. see this topos this turn up so often again. It's so interesting. Mm -hmm. Also, interestingly enough, um, Frankenstein is the creator, not the monster. A lot of people, when you say Frankenstein, they think of the monster, yeah. not the creator. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> no, the, the monster scientist. was Boris Karloff. We know that. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> We should probably clarify all that. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was the actor from the earlier yes. movies. Yeah. For those who don't know that. <laughs> yeah. mm. And um, the book was also titled Or the Modern Prometheus. And um, the modern Prometheus is also the creator because the creator stole the fire, so to say, because yeah, just going back to, to ancient Greek mythology, Prometheus was the person who stole fire for, for humankind, but in turn or with that led to very bad outcomes, as according to Mary Shelley. Yeah, so with that book, she pretty much laid the foundation for gothic science fiction or science fiction and at all. And funnily enough, something I stumbled over when, when preparing for this is that a certain author of a certain teenage young fiction story also claims that her story came to her in a dream like Mary Shelley. And that was Stephanie Meyer with Twilight. <laughs> okay, okay. So I was like, hmm, I wonder if that's genuine or if it was more like, I really like Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. So Mary, maybe I should have a dream about that too. <laughs> But I won't, don't want to put that in her mouth, obviously. Like, it can totally be that she dreamt of that. <laughs> uh, exactly. We, we dream of a lot of weird stuff. It's just uh, yeah. very rarely something that we remember properly and we yeah. end up writing down. But who knows how a mind, a creative mind works like that. So uh, yeah. I just found it funny in a way that like you have two female authors who both pretty much start a new yeah. liter literary movement in a way. Yeah. And they both dream about what they're writing. But hey, not impossible. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the, the, the Twilight story, story is much more of a cliche, isn't it? So it's, it's, it's like not much new going on there <laughs> unlike the story of frankenstein don't make enemies now with people <laughs> of, of this. no but but what you can't deny is that it did bring a lot of fantasy back into young adults fiction or like yeah, teenage right. fiction because like if you go before twilight and after twilight after you have all of these books that are about fairies, vampires, werewolves, blah, 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 you name it. And before, mm -hmm. you didn't really have that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you had Harry Potter. I think Harry Potter was before Twilight. Harry Potter was probably the, the thing that started it, but I think the whole vampire craziness yeah. was rekindled by Twilight. Yeah, but vampires are obviously not, not the, t uh, the topic here <laughs> because Mary Wollstonecraft Jelly is, is the topic. <laughs> And uh, yeah, she was born on the day of the recording, but 1797. So happy birthday, Mary Shelley. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, thank you very much for that, Annika. Thank you. <laughs> An interesting and very nice catch. Um, let's move on to finding out if Pontus has something to poke the Pope for. We actually had Andras pokes the Pope just a second ago, so I think I will leave him <laughs> a, 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 a rest. Okay. So, as you said, Andras, he is going to Hungary for this uh, cracking event, and then uh, we will see. I think we'll catch up with him a little bit later when they it's time to do these uh, trials, uh, the, the court trials that are happening in the Vatican uh, later this year. Unless something other uh, pops up before that. But this week, I think we'll give him a, 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 a pass. Okay. He needs to rest. He's old. <laughs> yeah, and, and he's, he's sick as well, or at least uh, was a couple of, couple of months ago. But uh, th there were rumors of him actually not coming, even though he, he was invited uh, for political reasons that because he had a, a couple of a couple of political clashes with uh, the Hungarian government. But uh, now that you mentioned that we should probably catch up with him, um, Mark can do that. Um, I will be here. 
after the 8th of September because I'm, I'm going on another tour very soon, the day after tomorrow. Yeah, that's from the day of the recording, not the day of the release of this episode. Never mind. So the, the, when I'm back from Malta, um, I might be able to catch up with him and uh, interview him for the show. Uh, if you if you think it's try, yeah, yeah, get get him on the show, <laughs> get him on show. It's long, long overdue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, dear sir, um, how do you feel about Pontus poking you week after week? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. I actually enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, it's quite an interesting sensation. Right. Okay. <laughs> We shouldn't go into detail here. <laughs> no, we we just leave it to everyone's imagination. Okay, moving on to the news. Yes, all right. So we haven't mentioned COVID too much on this uh, show yet. So of course we'll have to do that. Uh, in France, the protests against vaccine passports are, are continuing. So the government has implemented rules for attending cafes, restaurants, public transportations and, and, and other public events as well. You, you can't use these services without a health pass now. Uh, and that health pass should show either a recent negative virus test or that you have been fully vaccinated. And people are going bananas over this. So every Saturday now for almost two months, uh, hundreds of thousands of people have shown up on the streets all over the country the expressed purpose of the regulations are, is not just to stop the spread of the virus, but it's also to convince people to get vaccinated. At least that's what it said. And, and maybe that is what people are being really mad about because they see it as some sort of manipulation of their quote unquote liberties. And so they're showing now, showing up now on the streets, uh, sh chanting things like, if you love freedom, clap your hands. And, you know, how, how can you how can you argue with that? That's not very scientific or, or, or even rational thinking. I mean, clapping your hands or, or loving freedom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I love freedom and I love clapping my hands, but I, I don't want to spread viruses around. And that's what they're doing. And if you look at the science, it's clear that there's a lot of vaccine deniers among them. Of course, it's not just about their freedoms. Uh, there's a lot of references to people uh, who are known spreaders of misinformation on the, these signs, including our friend Didier Raoul. I wouldn't call him our friend. <laughs> no, no, okay. But we've mentioned him before. Yeah. yeah. I, I think he's still advocating for hydroxychloroquine as a remedy for COVID. Yeah. And hashtag Touche à Raoul is uh, apparently a thing on Twitter now. So it means, of course, don't touch Raoul or, or don't criticize him or attack him, I suppose. So that's the movement. Uh, uh, so it, very easily these things turns into personality cults. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that's strange. And the thing is, and we've seen, said this so many times, what people really mean when they say freedom is that they mean their freedom to infect others and to spread the disease. And the irony is that if they all went home and took precautions and followed the rules, we could beat this pandemic much quicker. They are the ones making uh, sure that the virus is spreading, not in the least in their stupid marshes. And, and, and then we come to what I think is an important realization that we all are getting now. It's gradually coming upon us. We haven't reached herd immunity yet, apparently, because even if the vaccines are preventing severe disease and death, uh, the spread seems to be accelerating or at least not uh, slowing down. According to Our World in Data, as of 26th of August, 71% uh, of the French population has received at least one dose and 58% has been fully vaccinated. And apparently that is not enough. That is a huge threat to people who can't be vaccinated, people with some sort of compromised immune system, either from illness or from going through treatments for other things. Yeah, I have no sympathy for these protesters in France. They are stupid and selfish, in my opinion, <laughs> and they are sabotaging the attempts to get this catastrophic pandemic under control. And it really makes me angry. But this with herd immunity it also makes me feel a bit pessimistic. It turns out that at least 58% or 60% doesn't seem to be doing it for us. 
And if it turns out that the COVID herd immunity lies around something like measles at 95%, then I believe we are screwed and we will have to live with this forever because it won't go away until uh, everybody or as many as possible are vaccinated. Or had it. Yeah, uh, yeah. but the problem is that by then, and that this is a huge difference uh, when we compare it to measles, that measles doesn't go through those very quick phases of uh, mutations that uh, the, the coronaviruses, all coronaviruses do, uh, and uh, influenza viruses as well. So the problem, currently, the, the greatest problem is the Delta variant being the most prominent uh, in the population and uh, in in several countries and most of the countries and uh, there there was just recently some data published from uh, Israel well where well an, an amazingly high number of people have been vaccinated already but the problem is that they see it go through part of the population that has been fully vaccinated as well so now they're experimenting with booster vaccines. So the third vaccination looks like it can do something to prevent transmission as well. Because the the, the thing was, and that was surprising uh, before the, the Delta variant, that it somehow managed to bring down the level of transmission as well as severe illness and hospitalization and even uh, symptomatic uh, disease. But the problem is that with the Delta variant, the, the whole thing changed mm. because now the number of, your, of viruses in your system can go up so high that you can also uh, spread the virus much more easily than with the previous variant. Right. And uh, that is difficult. And it will get worse as time passes by because there will be more and more variants coming out. Yeah, we already see the Delta variant evolving into something different. Exactly. But uh, we, exactly. we should also be clear that, I mean, you said it's it's uh, it's evolving quickly or there's a lot of variants. I, it's not as bad as uh, the flu virus. Yeah, that's right. Corona uh, viruses do not change that quickly, which was the hope we had uh, for a long time, that this will not mutate as much as the influenza virus, and that would be good for us. But it seems that it, it has such a big population to, to do, to mutate in, because we're almost infecting all of the planet. And uh, we're giving it, uh, we're like a year and a half now, and uh, the the number of infections, of course, drives the, the yeah. possibilities to, to mutate. Yeah, and one of the things that we usually blame for all this situation is something that, uh, that's uh, been called uh, the infodemic. And we use that word very often. Even us here on this show have been heard saying that. And uh, it wasn't coined by the WHO, but uh, because it was coined back in 2003 with the SARS. But the problem was that when the COVID-19 hit the world, then the WHO started using that as a substitute word for disinformation and the general phenomena that misinformation and disinformation campaigns can spread very easily and some even said that it's it spreads faster than the actual virus and it spreads like a virus now recently just at the end of july there was an article published in new media and society by two um, researchers uh, at the oxford internet institute uh, felix simon and uh, chico camargo so they argue that we probably should not use the word infodemic because it's misleading. It has a lot of things that doesn't really uh, click with reality and uh, that it's oversimplified. And because of all this, it leads to, it has several consequences that we probably don't want, including some politicians gaining ground on the basis of, uh, of, of using this word, on the basis of tackling and fighting disinformation and, an, and a so-called infodemic, uh, they gain so much power that they can actually uh, exploit and cut back on freedom of, of uh, people on different levels. And we've seen that happen across the board. Um, if uh, they, they even mentioned Hungary, for example, well, how the Hungarian government used it to, to grab even more power. Uh, but some other 
places, uh, not only in Europe, but in Russia as well, uh, are mentioned. South Africa, uh, South Africa is mentioned as well, where uh, temporary legislations led to cutting back on, back on people's uh, rights. Now, that is just one aspect of the whole thing. Uh, but why they say that the problem is much deeper than, than, than all this? And there are a couple of points they make that I can, I can definitely agree with. One of them is that it doesn't really spread as a disease. It's not like a proper pandemic. Because where a pandemic is being caused by one agent that is a virus the case of COVID-19. But when it comes to the infodemic that we usually refer to as, the pieces of misinformation and disinformation activities are so numerous and they get intermingled with each other and uh, they are being spread by different sources and it cannot be dealt with in the form of uh, just fighting one agent like a virus. So it's a much more complex situation than a virus spreading across the world. The other problem that they mention, and I don't know, they, they bring up a lot of published material to, to back up their claims, but they say that misinformation is not contagious. It's not something that you catch by accident. It's something that you consume deliberately, something that you find appealing, and as a result, you take it in and you spread it further. So it's not something that you unknowingly and unwillingly just uh, have to go through. And this is why they, they argue that we shouldn't talk about uh, mind viruses, for example. So the cognitive sciences say that it's a much more complex thing, how these misinformations uh, do spread. And uh, the problem is that we also argue that because of the overwhelming amount of information out there, people don't really know how to distinguish between good or bad information. That's what we claim a lot of the times, right? But authors argue that it's not necessarily the case because most of the people, and there are pieces of research that really back up that, that argument, however, I have my doubts. So they argue that most of the people do not get lost in the flood of information because they have learned over the times how to cope with that overwhelming amount of information and they only accept things that they have found to be useful for them. Now, they leave out one thing and that is very important, I think, that that means that they have a filter that has developed in them based on their preferences. So if I want to believe something, of course I will select the information that supports that belief and not the ones that challenges it, right? Yeah. And they ignore that, that aspect of the, of the problem. So they mention it as a positive thing that uh, people have learned to select the information the, through cognitive strategies that they want to let in. And the third thing that they mention is that it really doesn't spread like a, um, an epidemic because there are actual deliberate actions of spreading misinformation. That's something that we call disinformation. That is uh, misinformation that is spread deliberately. And uh, that is, of course, something that we, we don't see in the pandemic. So they argue that we shouldn't use it. But I think the strongest argument against it is that it can be turned on its back. It can backfire. We all remember how the expression fake news was completely hijacked by the Trump administration, right? So he turned it back on itself and started using the expression fake news for everything that he didn't like. And of course, all that it created was a complete chaos. Yeah, and the last thing to mention is what I basically started out with, is that there are signs of uh, countries taking advantage of the situation and especially with the backing of the WHO because the WHO uses this term still very frequently, the infodemic. And since that means that they do have the backing of the WHO, countries or governments feel like they can actually do it because they have legitimate reasons to fight the infodemic, as we all call it, and uh, take measures that are far beyond the measures that we would definitely need to stop the pandemic. So I don't know exactly know where I stand on this, but I have my doubts 
of the validity of some of the arguments that they make. Yeah, and something that's also not really reliable and probably also not um, really valid is um, taking ivermectin. Mm-hmm. Because uh, there was a meta-analysis redacted after they discovered that it contained fraudulent data. I read a joke about taking ivermectin a few days ago and I found it really fitting. And that was, it's ironic that people who call other people sheep are taking livestock drugs right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, yeah, well, the FDA uh, officially urges them to stop because there's literally zero verifiable data to support it being a miracle drug. And people who who said that, they all pointed to this one meta-analysis study, um, which, as I said, got redacted at the request of the authors. There were mishaps about the language because someone put it through a thesaurus. So it, it really used like very weird synonyms for, for example, even for SARS. But the data uh, was actually more concerning or the, like the wrong data. For example, the number of deaths got downplayed in the study. 79 patients essentially got cloned. So they had the same medical records. And this can't probably can't be done unintentionally. They didn't want to say it in the article that I've used, but... Ah, so they used copy-paste. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, like, it's very hard to do that unintentionally. Let's mm. voice it that way. <laughs> um, and there are ethical concerns about this too, because if you have working medication, don't give them livestock drugs, you know? It's like hard. So, yeah, the, the authors of the article I read, um, they were actually hopeful that may, people might now stop taking ivermectin <laughs> because now the study is redacted. I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's like maybe maybe those who weren't sure but and, and were like, yeah, but the study also is good. They might stop now, but people who are who don't believe in, in fake science and everything anyways, they, they will not stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And I hear that the last patient, you should take it, actually. I, I, I'm on the other side because the last patient who took it won the Kentucky Derby. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a joke. Yeah, that's a joke. Yeah. And those, those <laughs> muscles look really, really nice and whoa, massive. Yeah. Massive muscles there. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, one other way of um, convincing people to uh, not adhere to the rules introduced by the country's administrations is to quote someone or bring up someone's own words and uh, making it appear as if it supported your idea of just shitting on the rules of society. So there are lots of different memes and and, uh, social media posts put out by even churches uh, across the world. And they tend to quote Martin Luther, who supposedly say something along the lines of uh, I shall not avoid person or place and I will go freely or something something like that. Freedoms! Freedoms! E- exactly. So we're back to square one with uh, <laughs> crying freedom to everyone. <laughs> and Snopes uh, went on to find out if uh, the, at least the quotes were attributed correctly. And they found that they were. However, the problem is that uh, they were massively taken out of context. And uh, the letter that was a real letter written by, by Luther back in uh, 1527 was basically something that really existed during the bubonic plague epidemic that was going on. And it was really deadly and it was terrible. But his words were massively taken out of context. And uh, in 1968, there was a publication of uh, Luther's uh, writings. And among that, there is the letter. And uh, the problem is that the spreaders of this quote decided to leave out a couple of very important details. So instead of just saying that, therefore I shall ask God to mercifully protect us, then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine and take it. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me and I have done what he expected of me. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid person or place, but will go freely. That is what's being spread across the internet. But, um, well, there is something that is missing (laughs) out of this, and that is a sentence that goes, I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated, and thus perchance infect and pollute others, and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. 
Ah, that's totally <laughs> so contrary in... to what just was th- said, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the part where he, he says, if God should wish to take me, there are certain parts that were missing from this quote as well, because the original goes, if God should wish to take me, he will surely find me and I have done what he has expected of me. And so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely as stated above. So, how we can translate all this into plain English, plainer than the original German that was translated into English. (laughs) So, yeah, by all means, believe in the help from God, but please take the necessary measures and be in your right mind and don't do stupid things. Don't do anything that will help the virus to spread and bring danger to others as well as yourself. But if for some reason you are needed by someone who needs your help and you can help the situation by assisting others, then yeah, by all means, go and help them out, but still be careful. So, uh, and also don't take medical advice from the Middle Ages. (laughs) That's a a good idea as well. Why should we listen to somebody from the 1500s about this? It's totally ridiculous. Yeah. And it's not like he was infallible as the Pope is supposed to be or a saint because exactly. Lutherans exactly. don't believe in saints. So I don't know why he should be quoted in this. Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, but if you want to quote him, then bring out the, the full quote and then you'll realize that he was probably making a lot of sense even though we should not take medical advice from him. So if you want to follow his words, then follow them word by word. And the other thing is that there are two informal logical fallacies in this situation. One of them is argument from authority, Mm -hmm. because people take him as an authority, even on this matter. And the other thing is, no, actually, there are, there are more than two. <laughs> there is cherry-picking here going on, yes. <laughs> because they, they are just picking the words uh, from the, this quote that uh, fits their argument. And the third is argument from... Um, antiquity? Antiquity. Argument from antiquity, because it's an old saying, and if it's this old, then it has to make sense. No, it doesn't. So it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it makes any sense. No. So... Uh, both uh, thanks to Snopes for digging it all out. And they had to issue a correct attribution stamp for this because it was basically attributed correctly to Martin Luther. However, now that we're mentioning uh, Snopes, I have to say that the legal battle that they have been fighting for four years is still going on. So please, if you can spare some money, do help them out. Uh, They have um, a newly launched uh, system of uh, subscriptions to their services, although they do provide their services free of charge. But uh, if you can help them out, then please do so, because they are doing an amazing job at uh, fact-checking, things like this. Yes. Okay, but that brings us to the end of the news uh, circle, which all means that we have to find out as soon as possible who's been really wrong lately. Hmm. Right, so after the Swedish Steiner School scandal, try to say that quickly ten times in a row, Steiner School scandal. <laughs> no, the Swedish, Swedish Steiner School Steiner, scandal. I can't say it again. <laughs> Swedish Steiner School scandal. <laughs> Anyway, there were uh, other Steiner schools as well have come into focus in the press, in the Swedish media. And uh, I talked about the original scandal in episode 279. And that was about a specific school that was heavily criticized for ignoring and neglecting a lot of mandatory rules and guidelines regarding education. The so-called pedagogy of, of the Steiner schools are, is based on, on Rudolf Steiner, who founded the anthroposophical movement about a century ago. He was a believer in esoteric things, and anthroposophy is filled with a lot of these ideas about spirits and other mumbo-jumbo. And when it comes to schooling, it's a lot about the students expressing themselves artistically is singing or in dance or in painting. And uh, if a child doesn't fit that model, there are many reports uh, about harassment and bullying, even by the teachers, not just the other children. Uh, reading and writing is not prioritized very much. And, and 
Steiner schools have an exemption also for grading students before the final ninth year, which means that some students get their first, well, all of their students, they get their first grade on the day that they leave school. And uh, that could easily mean that students who felt that they were doing quite well can get a real shock in in discovering that they actually have very low grades. And that's on the actual day when it's too late to do anything about it. As I said, there's a lot of uh, renewed interest in what's actually happening in these schools in Sweden. Uh, There's about 6,000 children attending Steiner schools at the moment, which is about half a percent of all school children. So some people feel that that's not uh, a, a lot, but I think... It sounds like quite a lot of people, uh, children actually. And a recent investigation that was made by the Swedish Teachers Union have found some rather disturbing facts. So only 41% of all teachers in Steiner schools in Sweden have a formal license as a teacher. Now, it's not illegal to have non-qualified teachers at a school, but uh, that number is disturbingly low. Based also on the number of students, Steiner schools have way over double the number of officially upheld complaints against them, if you compare them to other schools. Uh, And that's remarkable, since a lot of the parents that put uh, their children in Steiner schools are often very loyal to the schools and and are emotionally hesitant to to file formal complaints. But still, they have twice as many Mm -hmm. or more than twice as many upheld complaints uh, than other schools. And what kind of complaints are we talking about? Well, a a recurring theme uh, is lack of competence from the teacher's uh, side. And using unacceptable physical force is also uh, very common, like restraining children and often children with difficulties, uh, you know, some children have difficulties settling down and focusing and then, then and e- it can even get a little bit, uh, you know, children are children, but you're not supposed to physically restrain them uh, like that. In one case, um, one student came home with an injury to the face and it took over four days for the school to even acknowledge the parents' questions about what had happened. Another example that came up was that there was a girl with tendencies for self-harm and she was on her own request given a sharp pair of scissors and then left unattended. Oh wow. Um, They they don't say if anything really happened but that's clearly unacceptable and incompetent. That's neglect. Yeah it's neglect. Wow. Yeah. And then, then there are a lot of personal stories that I've heard over the years as well about bullying, children with a, a stutter getting low grades for not being able to speak correctly, even if you know all the subjects, but you can't articulate uh, verbally and you can write fine, but you can't speak properly, then you get a very low grade. Uh, there is no real access to electronic equipment that's sort of banned, that Steiner didn't have that in the early 1900s, so why should we have them? Harassment against children based on how they dress. On and on, it it says. Football was likened by some teachers like kicking a cut-off head. So it was not allowed because it was too violent. And that's (laughs) that's soccer we're talking about. It's not not American football. On and on it goes. I won't bore you with all the things, but uh, there's a lot of... Uh, religious things too, like uh, morning prayers, which is not supposed to happen. Anti-vax is prevalent again and again. The term surviving Steiner schools is not uncommon among uh, grown-ups who went through a Steiner school as a child. I, I should acknowledge as well that a lot of people come out of these Steiner schools with very positive feelings as well, but that's often the ones that are very, you know, that it's suited for people who can adapt to these things. But Steiner schools are not very good at taking care of students with special needs, etc. And a lot of the survivors, if we will, see themselves as victims. And I will link, put in the show notes, a link to an article on the Swedish Skeptics website, which is not, the article itself is, is several years old, but there's some comments and there have been new comments now as well, Uh, since this is coming up more and more. Mm. So to round it off, we did get rid of uh, 
the one anthroposophical hospital we had in Sweden uh, back in 2019. They had to close. So I hope this is the beginning now of the same thing happening to these anthroposophical Steiner schools. But while we are waiting for that to happen, the Swedish authorities get this week's award for being really wrong, since they, for years and years, have allowed these schools to continue, and they could easily revoke these schools' licenses anytime they wanted, if they wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well deserved. Yeah, it is. Oof. Yeah, we should probably get a deep dive into uh, Steiner schools at some point. Yeah. Uh, we've been meaning to do that for a while, and, uh, well, we should Yes. We should probably have some experts on to talk about this. Yeah, we should, definitely. <laughs> yeah. All right. So thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you. And uh, that brings us to the end of the show, which means that we need a quote before we say goodbye. And the quote comes from our birthday boy, Hermann von Helmholtz. Yeah, sehr gut. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So he was a physician and a physicist back in the 19th century, and he said the following thing. Each individual fact, taken by itself, can indeed arouse our curiosity or our astonishment or be useful to us in its practical applications. But intellectual satisfaction we obtain only from a connection of the whole, just from its conformity with law. Hmm. All right. Interesting. I just love the beauty of this approach. Yes. I mean, it's not <laughs> not necessarily a, a, a skeptical quote, but it's an ode to science. Science. Uh, and scientific yeah. inquiry. All right. And with those thoughts, I'd like to thank both of you, Annika and Pontus, for joining thank me today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks uh, as well to our listeners for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Wisslat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Oh, hello. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, so study about ivermectin. Is it or is it pronounced ivermectin? I didn't really pick up. Ivermectin, I think. Ivermectin. Ivermectin. Uh, oh, ivermectin. What do you think? Yeah, you got to say it with an Aussie accent. Ivermectin. <laughs> ivermectin. <laughs> that was my Australian accent. <laughs> That's right. That's how the Yahweh's pronounce it, by the way. <laughs> So ivermectin. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, I'll start again. <laughs>